And then in the follow-up visit, that neurologist told my parents that, that as I grew older, there would be very, very few things that I would be able to do and that I would be very limited in my abilities. And uh, my mom tells the story that when they left the hospital and they went out and got into the car, uh, she turned to my dad and said, we're never going back to that doctor again. Yeah. And so, and they didn't. Um, and they never took his advice. They never took his counsel. Um, and I think that was kind of that pivotal moment where they decided that, um, that they were going to support me in whatever I chose to do. All right. Today's a very special day. We have a special guest that I go way back with. So I'd like to welcome our guest, Tate Castleton, from the budding metropolis of Preston, Idaho, is the town where he grew up. And as many of my listeners know, that's the town that I grew up in as well. And so Tate and I were just a few years apart, but I knew him and I knew his family. And it's just an absolute honor to be able to have him on the show today. Something very special about Tate is he is an individual that has grown up his entire life with a physical disability and has been able to find ways not to just um, survive, if you may, but I would say thrive and be able to succeed at a very, very high level, both personally and professionally. So Tate, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brady. It's just, it's beyond an honor to be here. So excited to be with you today. Absolutely. So we got to start back at the beginning in both of us at Preston, Idaho. We can't not start with our hometown of Preston, Idaho. So how was that experience for you growing up in a small town? And maybe share a little bit about your family. Sure, you bet. Um, you know, for me, uh, I, I love um, being able to talk about Preston, Idaho, um, because I, I just feel like it was the perfect place um, for me to grow up as a boy um, and a wonderful community full of amazing people um, that did so much for me and, and for my family. And um, we, we were so fortunate. Um, I, I was born a twin um, and we were the last in a family of seven boys. Um, my mom had five boys and she wanted to try one more time for a girl and <laughs> and got twin boys and so she threw her hands up and said I'm not doing this anymore we're done so so uh so we 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 were a large family um and we lived right in the heart of town right in the heart of Preston there uh we had a home kitty corner from uh, the football field and just a block away from the high school and the middle school at the time and so we were right there in the middle of town and right there in the middle of the action um uh, my my dad was uh, a magistrate judge. Um, he was the only magistrate judge in all of Franklin County, um, and so that was a unique experience um, growing up with your with your dad being the only judge in town and having to go to school with kids that might have uh, had to be in front of him from time to time. <laughs> That's so, right, and uh, including you know my own brothers at different times. So uh, anyway, but uh, we were just so fortunate um, to 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 be able to to grow up in Preston. And, and to be surrounded by um, people that, that I believe um, were put into my life um, for, for a divine purpose. And so um, I, I'm just deeply thankful for the community of Preston and, and we, we miss it. Uh, my parents moved from that community after living there for about 30 years um, when I was serving an LDS mission and, and they moved to the Boise area, which is where we live now. Um, but but uh, miss Preston and being able to go back and it's kind of weird to go back past your old childhood home and see it change a little bit um, and not 
have it be your home. So, but uh, just love that community and, and so grateful for it. Yeah, I feel absolutely the exact same way. What a what a tremendous place to get to call our home for when we were growing up. So you have mentioned that you are the youngest of, of seven boys. I don't know, did Taggart come before you? So are you officially the youngest or the second? <laughs> no, I was actually born first. Okay. Uh, I was born first and Taggart came about five minutes later. So Very good. I'm That's technically good. not the youngest. <laughs> there you go. That's right. And so, um, you know, I, I know your family. Your family is a very high achieving. Um, it was a you're very athletic family and just outgoing family. And I'm really curious to learn more about how that was for you uh, growing up with having a physical disability and being able to see your brothers. I mean, in particular, your older brothers and, and your twin brother, who is a great athlete. I mean, that, that had to be a unique experience. And I'd love to learn a little bit more about that experience for you growing up. It was for sure. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of what I did um, as I grew up um, was, was patterned after and was motivated by things that my brothers had done um, and being able to watch them be active in a variety of different things, um, whether it was being involved in different school activities or being involved athletically. Um, all of those things were, were important. Um, but, you know, for me, when, when I was born, I actually, I, I visited with my parents the other day in preparation for this, um, just to, to learn a little bit more about those early, early years um, when our memories aren't quite as, as sharp. Um, but when my mom was pregnant with my twin brother and I, she got sick with uh, bacterial pneumonia. Um, and uh, they believe that because of that, um, that I had a stroke when I was still um, in utero. And so um, when I was born, there was no obvious sign that anything was wrong or that anything was different. Um, and they really didn't start to notice anything different about me until I got to the point where I could start to crawl. Um, and I used my left hand differently um, than, than my right. And so um, because of my stroke, it left me paralyzed on the entire left side of my body. So I have very limited use of my left hand and my left leg is, is, is a little bit shorter than my right leg. So I walk with a pronounced limp. So, um, and my, my left arm, you know, try as I might. And, and I just throughout my life have just gotten used to it. But if I'm not paying attention, it, it'll kind of curl up against my chest, you know, and, and, uh, and so when I'm walking around with my arm curled up to my chest and with a little bit of a limp, it's, it's noticeable um, and people see that. And so, um, but uh, one of the decisions that my parents made early on in my life um, was that they were never going to treat me any differently than my brothers. Um, and I think that was one of the pivotal decisions that they made in my life. Um, they were always going to invite and encourage and support me in doing whatever, whatever I wanted. And so I grew up watching my brothers play basketball. Uh, we had a large driveway in our home uh, growing up with a big basketball hoop, and we would spend many, many hours outside playing basketball. And um, I wanted to be a part of that. And, you know, while I was never great at dribbling with both hands, obviously, um, I was able to practice and practice and practice and learn to shoot pretty well with my right hand. And so um, the thing that I, I learned as I grew up is that I could do things that my brothers did. I just had to learn to do them a little bit differently. 
and that was that was okay. And it wasn't always didn't always look pretty. It didn't always look great, um, but but I was able to do that. Um, I also had brothers that were very involved in school. They were involved in student council. They were involved in a lot of different extracurricular activities, and those things interested me, and I wanted to to do that. And so I ran for sixth and seventh grade class president when I was in middle school and was fortunate enough to be elected to do that. And that was a lot of fun. And then when I was a senior, I decided to run for student body president and was elected to do that. And so um, I did all of those things because I watched my brothers do them as they were growing up. And um, I, I wanted to be able to experience that because it just looked like they were having so much fun doing it. And it really became one of the great blessings of my, of my life. I really do look back on my experiences in both, um, you know, uh, middle and high school, um, and and have nothing but the fondest memories of of those times during during my life. But being able to watch my brothers do what they did had a big part in all of that. So uh, Taggart was the my twin brother Taggart was the starting varsity quarterback um, when we were seniors in high school, um, and so you know we we obviously had our different interests. I was the student body president, and he was the starting quarterback, and and uh, but we still did a lot of things together, and uh, they all of my brothers were always very supportive of me and my and my efforts to do what, whatever I wanted to try. Yeah, I have to give a huge shout out to your parents. Um, something that I see in the work that that I'm involved in, and just being in the special, what I refer to as the special abilities community, I often find that the only thing holding back a child from rising up and singing the song they're meant to sing is what their parents believe their abilities are. And huge shout out to your parents for um, day one, making that decision that they want to allow you to ultimately rise up and sing the song that you're meant to sing. And as a result, that's blessed a lot of people's lives, not only yours, but a lot of people's lives and being able to see you achieve what it is that you achieved at a young age and also what you're doing right now. Would love to learn a little bit about once you got through your vocation, uh, let's say at least high school, you chose to serve a mission for your church. And I'd love to learn about that experience. And then talk to us about after your mission and school and choice of profession and getting married, et cetera, and how that has all played into, you know, what that may be like or how that may be different in having a, phys a physical disability. Sure, sure. Uh, one thing I want to mention too, um, and this is a story my mom tells, is that when I was young, um, they took me to McKady Hospital in Ogden to meet with a neurologist. And uh, that neurologist uh, did several tests and and they, they met and looked over me for quite a while. And then in the follow-up visit, that neurologist told my parents that that as I grew older, there would be very, very few things that I would be able to do and that I would be very limited in my abilities. And uh, my mom tells the story that when they left the hospital and they went out and got into the car, uh, she turned to my dad and said, we're never going back to that doctor again. Yeah. And so, and they didn't, um, and they never took his advice. They never took his counsel. Um, and I think that was kind of that pivotal moment where they decided that, um, that they were gonna support me in whatever I chose to do um, and encourage me to do everything that, that uh, that I wanted to do. So, so that, that was a big thing. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm grateful uh, that, that they made that decision that day not to listen to that doctor because it did make a big difference. But 
You're right. When I graduated from high school, um, I I remember that all of my life I wanted to serve an LDS mission. I wanted to do that. Um, and I had watched all of my brothers go out and serve missions prior to, to me doing that. And a few of my brothers uh, went overseas um, and several of them stayed in the States. Um, and I was certain that because of my disability, um, that the church would probably want me to serve stateside um, and stays probably somewhere close to home. Um, and and that was okay with me. Um, I trusted that the Lord knew where I needed to be and, and where he wanted me to be. And I was willing to do whatever he asked. And so um, I remember that I was actually living in Provo over the summer with a friend of mine you know, when my mission call came. And back in those days, it just came in the mail. And um, and I wasn't able to get home that weekend because I had to work. Um, and so I just asked my parents to open it over the phone. And um, when they opened it and they read that I was being called to Melbourne, Australia, um, I, that was one of the few moments in my life where I felt this incredible rush of peace and just confirmation that that's what the Lord wanted me to do. And uh, I sat there and I thought, gosh, I, I, I wasn't going to complain if I had to go overseas, but I didn't think he would throw me as far around the world as he did. <laughs> as um, far as it gets. Huh? And so for, for a kid that spent the first 19 years of his life in, in a little town of 5,000 people, that was a big, that was a big thing. Um, but I, I remember... Um, and I will say this, you know, on your mission, you have an opportunity to serve with uh, a companion um, all the way through your mission. And those companions change as you move through through the months and years of your missions. But um, I, I know and I and I and I have a deep belief um, that the companions that I had were the ones that the Lord knew that I needed. Um, and every one of them, I only had five companions during the course of my two-year mission. Um, and every one of them, I am still dear friends with today, um, 20, almost 25 years later. Um, and I'm grateful for them. But I, I remember when I first arrived in Australia, the mission doctor met with me there. And his name was Dr. Major. Um, and he was like a 75-year-old, grumpy old man. I mean, he was just grouchy and, and just pretty stern. And uh, I remember he looked at me and, and, and he said... Um, you know, on your mission, you have to ride a bike, right? And he said, are you okay riding a bike or do you think you need a car? And I just looked at him and I said, I'll do whatever, I'll do whatever the mission president asked me to do. And so for the first six months of my mission, I was on a bike and, and man, it was, it was tough. It was hard work, but uh, I knew how to ride a bike. Um, but doing it in a shirt and tie and hundred degree weather every day and going from place to place, that was, that was challenging. But but I knew that the Lord was preparing me for um, and providing me with the stamina that I would need to, to make it through my mission physically. And, and it was a wonderful joy to me um, to be able to do that. And I, I found that I often shared a message about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Um, I shared that as much as I did stories about my own special abilities because people would often ask. Um, and there were many unique experiences that I had as a missionary, um, particularly with those that had special abilities, um, that I knew that that's why the Lord needed me to be there. And so, so I was grateful for that. And um, the question that I actually have on that is, do you feel like there were 
doors that were opened up to you um, as a result of individuals, maybe hearts being more open or more soft, or just simply seeing you and knowing that you came from another country and you're out there on a bike and it's a hundred degrees and you're in a shirt and tie and seeing you take on that challenge, do you feel like that opened up doors for you that maybe your typical missionary wouldn't have had? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll share two things about that. I mean, first, um, I remember the first day when you were dropped off at the Missionary Training Center in Provo. And um, I think I had like four suitcases and uh, it was difficult for me to manage those on my own. But um, I met my Missionary Training Center companion uh, soon after that. And his name is Ryan Camp. And um, he is still to this day uh, one of the most Christ-like loving people that, that I know on the planet. And, uh, and, and the moment that I met him, uh, he put all of my fears at ease um, because I, I wasn't invincible and I certainly didn't think I was. I was terrified. I, I didn't know what to expect on, on a mission and what that was going to look like. Um, I, was, I had faith that I could do it. And I knew the Lord wouldn't call me on a mission if he didn't feel like I could do it. But just those few, first few moments with, with Elder Camp were, were transformational for me. Um, and we actually ended up serving the last three months of our mission together as well, too. So um, that was just an awesome, awesome experience. But I will say, yes, that, you know, we spent a lot of time in Australia going door to door to meet and talk to people. Um, and uh, there were a few occasions where um, I, I do believe that people, um, I do believe their hearts were softened because they would look at me and they would say, you know, why would you come all the way around the world and wear a white shirt and tie every day um, with the obvious disability that you have um, and work this hard day in and day out? if it's not something that you didn't really believe in your heart and was important. And, and we had moments like that where um, we were allowed to teach people and, and work with people um, because of those experiences. And um, I still have a letter uh, in, my, in my office today uh, from someone that we worked with that acknowledged that it was because of that unique situation that, that those doors were opened. And so, I'm, I'm just grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. And, you know, I, I never in any way expect that, that that's going to change something um, or that that's going to, to open doors. Um, but I'm grateful that it, that it does from time to time. Thank you for sharing that. Would love to hear what it was like when you got home. And so love to hear how you met your wife and what that experience was like, um, <laughs> as well as your, your professional and educational background. That, uh, and so let's actually talk about that and share about that experience in meeting your future wife and what that experience was like in dating. I'm, I'm curious, as you were in high school, did you find dating that came naturally and simple mm -hmm. and, and so forth? I mean, you were the student body president, so you had to be fairly popular, but share a little bit around dating and, and also courting your wife. Sure, sure. Well, I, I did. Um, you know, when I when I was growing up, um, I, I met someone at, at a fairly young age um, and we grew up together and it wasn't until about our freshman year that we 
developed an interest in each other that went beyond friends. And and I did date the same young lady uh, through my years of high school. Um, and we did determine that before I left that we would try and make that work over the two, you know, the course of two years on my mission. Um, however, she she did meet somebody um, while I was while I was out on my mission, and so I am one of those that uh, falls into that category of having received that dear John letter. But but uh, I I still am grateful for for our friendship and, and the relationship that we shared because that was that was just huge. But growing up, that never seemed to be a significant issue, at least not for me. Um, you know, my twin brother. Uh, People often joke that he was a little bit better looking, and he was obviously athletic. And but uh, he didn't have a steady girlfriend like I did all the way through. So, so, uh, so. But um, when I came home from my mission, um, you know, my parents had moved to Boise, um, and I had never lived in Boise before. I had come for different things um, when I was growing up for conferences and things like that, but I hadn't spent a lot of time in Boise. So, um, I, I did spend some time living with my parents for a few months after I got home. Um, but I missed Preston. I missed the, you know, our, our hometown. And, and, uh, and so I decided to, to enroll at Utah State University after a semester at Boise State um, and to go to school down there. My brother Devin was, was living in Logan and, and I uh, had some roommates and they had a spot open uh, in the home they were living on, on 1200 North in Logan. And, and so I, I enrolled at Utah State and I went there. Um, and I remember one night talking to Devin about um, relationships. And um, this was back in the early days of online dating. Um, but I, I went on and I set up an account on an online dating service. And and I just told Devin, I said, I, I just, I don't know. You know, now that I'm at this point in my life where, where I can get married and I can start dating, um, I just, I don't know if it's going to happen for me. And and, you know, Devin's always been known as someone who's going to just tell you like it is. And and uh, and he just looked at me and he said, Tate, he said, whoever you're meant to marry is being prepared for you right now. And that person's going to love you for the rest of your life, no matter what you look like or what challenges you have. They're, they're going to be there for you and love you. And, and uh I did go through some ups and downs in dating when I first got home from my mission. In fact, I dated a young lady for a while that uh, I was pretty smitten by, and um, but she ultimately decided to walk away because, in in her own words to me, she she just wasn't comfortable with my physical disability, and so she she just wanted to be honest with me about that. And I I appreciate that, and, uh, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but just a few short months later, I I did. Uh, meet my wife um, through this online dating service. And we actually talked on the phone for about two months before we ever met in person. And uh, it, we always talk about that because I don't know what would have happened if we would have met face-to-face -face first. Um, and if if my physical disability would have been, um, you know, a negative for her um, or if it would have been a deal breaker for her, I, I don't know. Um, but I think she will tell you that that we fell in love over the phone. And um, and I remember the very first time we met, and I think this was kind of divine providence because um, it, it really kind of helped to, to just put both of us at ease. But we decided to, to meet in Provo 
Utah. Um, she was a student at BYU and I was still at Utah State at that time. And we decided to meet in Provo and we decided that we were gonna meet in the parking lot of the Bell Edwards Stadium. Um, and uh, I remember we both pulled up in our cars and I got out of my car and she got out of hers. And I remember what she was wearing that day. She was wearing a, a white polo shirt with a denim skirt. And within about the first 20 seconds of her stepping out of her car, she got a nosebleed and her nose started to bleed. And um, we had to act quickly because she was wearing a white shirt. We had to act quickly. And she had some friends that were living in the apartment complex right across the street from the stadium. And we rushed over there and got her cleaned up and eventually made it back to her sister's condo later that evening. And, and uh, but I, I just feel like in that moment, I think the Lord was kind of on my side because he knew how nervous I was for Emily to see me and my physical disability that first time. And he did something to kind of put us both in a situation where we weren't concerned about that. So I, I just get so, chills and am emotional listening to this. It's so incredible. It was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, we dated for several months uh, after that. Um, uh, over the course of a few months, I put about 20,000 miles on my car. Um, because I would a couple days a week after I'd be done with work and school in Logan, I'd get in my car and drive the hour and a half, two hours to Provo um, and spend a couple hours with her until midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And then I'd turn around and drive back to Logan. And and we did that back and forth for quite a long time. And uh, and we just knew, or at least I knew from the, from the moment that she had that bloody nose, I, I knew that that she was the one for me. I just, I knew it. And if you ask Emily today, you know, uh, we'll, on Monday, we'll have been married 19 years. And if you ask Emily today, um, I think she will tell you that she has never, she has never seen my physical disability. Um, and that, that she, she sees me for, man, that uh, the, the Lord wants me to be and needs me to be. And uh, I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, she knows too and I have felt deeply about this my entire life, just in the, the, the roots of my soul. I just feel, and, and I feel this way about everyone with special abilities, but I feel like um, the Lord doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes and, and, and there is purpose in all things. And um, as I have lived my life, I know, I know for certain that I needed what I have and that uh, it has been a blessing, I hope, not only to me personally, but to others as well. And so, um, you know, it, it's interesting because when, when we decided to get married, um, there was some apprehension um, on, on my wife's side of the family, I think a little bit initially, um, because they weren't quite sure they weren't quite sure what this all looked like. Um, and they weren't quite sure what Emily was thinking, uh, I think. And so, um, and and that's natural, you know, I think that's natural. And, and, and I think if I had been in their shoes, I probably would have felt the same way. I think they had questions and, and, and they had some concerns, but, but, um, and they didn't know me. Um, they didn't know my track record. They didn't know the things that I had done and accomplished entirely. Um, and so I, I understood that. 
Um, but all of these years later, particularly with my father-in-law, who who had probably the most questions and the most apprehension, I think. Um, I think all of these years later, um, they are some of my closest friends. And um, I am deeply grateful for my wife's family, um, for each, each one of them. And uh, you, you just know that that's one of the puzzle pieces that the Lord puts in your life to, to create what becomes eventually a beautiful picture. And so um, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for, for them. And I think they have seen over the course of the last two decades um, that, that I, I'm someone that isn't defined by my, my physical disability, um, but someone who does use it to drive them forward, for sure. Um, and so we were married in December of 2004, December 18th, 2004. And we, I, I transferred to uh, Utah Valley State College at the time. It's now Utah Valley University, but at that time it was UVSC. Uh, I had applied to get into BYU uh, with my wife, but they, they told me I needed to go down the hill and, and stay at UVSC for a while. So that's what I did. Uh, that's what I did. And we moved into this tiny little basement apartment and and we were going to school full time, and I was working full time for Ancestry.com, and and that was just a great time in our lives. I I I'm, I'm thankful for that, and and really grateful for the experiences that that we had there, um, and for what we were able to do. But my wife only had about a year and a half until she graduated with her degree in in elementary education and or in in education, and uh, and. We decided because my parents were living in the Boise area and my wife's parents were living in the Boise area as well, that, that we would apply for some jobs, uh, teaching jobs in, in, in Boise. And, Is that and, what you studied as well then was education? So, so not initially, not initially. So when, when I, in those early days of going to school, um, I was actually working on a degree in communications and journalism um, because part of what I did growing up in high school um, was I worked for the Preston Citizen, which was the local paper there, and uh, I was a sports writer for them for um, from the time I was twelve until I graduated from high school. So I worked for them for quite a bit. That. In fact, I tell my kids this story all the time because um, you know back then we had a computer in our house, but it was just one of those that had like the green blinking light on it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I would I would write my articles, which were probably no more than a paragraph or two at that time. Um, I would write them on this computer, and then I would print them off on that paper that you had to rip off the edges on. And, and uh, there was no such thing as email back then. So I tell my boys all the time that that uh, I got on my bike and, and and I would have to ride down to the Preston Citizen and turn it into Nisha Siemens by hand. Um, and so that's what I did every week. And that's phenomenal. Uh, on Sunday night, uh, I would take our cordless phone that was in the basement. That was a cool thing back then, too, the cordless phone. But I would take the cordless phone and go into my bedroom, and I'd have my yellow legal pad and my little recording device, and I would call coaches um, on Sunday night, and I would interview them about you know the games that had happened over the weekend, and then would use that to help me write these articles. So so that's what I did um, for, for a long time growing up. And and it just kind of felt like my destiny at that time. So, so I, I, I initially uh, pursued a degree in journalism and communications, and and that's what my 
bachelor's degree ended up being in. And, and when Emily got a teaching job here in Caldwell at Valley View Middle School, um, you know, we moved here and, and um, I enrolled at Boise State and continued um, to earn my bachelor's degree. But in that time, I, I worked at uh, a couple of different newspapers. I worked for Boise State's newspaper, The, the Arbiter, and I also worked for the Idaho Press Tribune in Nampa. And, uh, and it just kind of felt like for a while that was, that was my destiny. But um, in 2008, when we had our oldest son, and, and um, it became clear really quickly that um, the life of a journalist is not really compatible with, with uh, you know, the life of a father at times. Um, because I had to be gone at weird hours of the day and schedule was wonky and it, it felt like there was never really time off because um, right. there was always things happening. So, so um, I, I sat down with my wife one evening and having watched her be a teacher for a few years at this point, um, I, I said, you know, what, what would you think about me going back to school and, and getting a master's degree in education? What, what do you think about that? And uh, I think she was a little surprised for sure. Um, but she said, if that's what you want to do, let's do it. And so uh, that next semester, I was enrolled in a master's program in education. And, and uh, the next 18 months, that's what that's what I did. And at the conclusion of that 18 months, I had a chance to student teach at a little, a little um, well, it's not so much little, but it was at a building that was just down the road from here. Um, it used to be the old health and welfare offices, but it was the home of um, the, this local district's um, alternative high school. Wow. And, um, and at the time, they assigned me to do my student teaching there. Well, I had never heard of this school before uh, at that time. And, and so I did my student teaching there, and I just absolutely loved it. I taught high school English and, and, uh, and newspaper, and, and, and I, I loved it. It was a great experience, and when I was done with it, I wanted to be able to work there full time. But at the moment, they didn't have an opening for me, and so um, we kind of went into that summer not knowing what we were going to do or what the next step was. Um, but within a few weeks, I got a call from the principal, and he said, "Hey, we just had something open up. Do you want to come and interview for this job?" And I jumped on it, um, and for the next five years, that's where that's where I taught. Um, wow. And where I worked and um, I, I loved it. Um, and in time, uh, I became an instructional coach. Um, and really, people are often curious about what instructional coaches do in schools. I was just going to ask. Um, but uh, it's a really unique job in that um, the principal that I worked for in the school where I was an instructional coach, his, his number one directive for me was to just go help teachers get better. That's, that's, that's the job of an instructional coach. So you go into classrooms and you observe teachers and you get chances to meet with them afterward and have coaching sessions and talk about, you know, how they felt things went and what could be done better and what strategies could we put in place here or there, uh, what, what's needed in the classroom and just walk them through the different processes of just how to, how to continually improve. So all of us can continually improve. Um, but the, the number one foundation of that job is to make sure that people trust you, right? So um, it's hard to have effective coaching sessions with others if they don't trust you. And so that was a big part of my job too, is just getting to know people and establishing relationships of trust. And 
And uh, I, I really enjoyed that work. And that kind of springboarded me um, into the position that changed my life professionally. And um, I had an opportunity to go and work for Boise State University. Um, they had received uh, grant money um, for a project to, to help schools all over the state that lived in, that are located in rural areas, um, put in place behavioral frameworks um, in their schools to help improve um, both behavior outcomes and academic outcomes. And, and uh, my colleague and I had a chance to, to take that on and we worked with 40 schools all over the state of Idaho um, for the course of five years. Uh, wow. And I uh, had a chance to, to travel all over the state and walk into to, uh, hundreds of schools um, and work directly with 40 in particular. So it was an amazing experience. And during that time, um, I earned a doctorate and, uh, and um, graduated with that just last December. And so that was just an incredible experience. And the pilot district for that project um, is located in Homedale, just down the road from where we live here. And uh, about two years into this project, um, Homedale reached out to me and let me know that the elementary principal was retiring uh, because of health concerns and we just wanted to know if I was interested. And um, because I was working in a grant-based project, I knew that it wouldn't last forever at Boise State. And so I went to Boise State and I said, well, how do you feel about me um, trying to, to, to go for this job? and being able to stay on and continue working with the project at the same time. And so, so that's what ended up happening. I ended up um, getting the awesome. job as the elementary school principal and had a chance to continue working as part of that project over the course of the last three years in particular. But uh, anyway, this is amazing. So right now you're a principal and you have yes. been the last three years. And yep. so, you, so this, you have one son but you have more than that now. And so I'd love to learn <laughs> about your family a little bit. Yeah. So in, like I said, in 2008, we had our, our oldest son, uh, Aiden, um, and he is now a sophomore in high school. He's 15. Um, and he's a, he's a great kid. Um, but we kind of spaced our kids out a little bit in the beginning. We, we, uh, three years later, we had our, our second son, Kay. Um, and then three years after that, we had our third son, Parker. Um, and at that time, we kind of felt like we, we were done. Um, we, we felt that we were done. But as time went on, um, my wife just felt strongly that, that we weren't done yet. And I was pretty resistant to that. Um, I felt like three was a good number and, and we were in a good spot. Um, but my wife really felt strongly that we needed to, to, try, to try again. And so, um, and, and we did. Um, and uh, at that time, she suffered a miscarriage, and that was a difficult thing um, for her and for us, and yeah. and never an easy thing for anyone to experience, especially those that um, really feel strongly about starting a family. That can be a really difficult thing, um, and and it was for a time. It was for a time, and it kind of made us second guess what we were, were thinking and what we were feeling, um, and we just still felt strongly that we needed to try again, and so. We did, and, and we welcomed our fourth son, Jack, and, uh, and he was a wonderful addition for us. Um, but then the tables kind of turned, and after that, I was the one that felt like we weren't. Really? Yeah. 
Um, and so I just had this feeling like we shouldn't be done. Um, and during this time, my wife's father um, had started to, to become ill. Um, and uh, it was determined that he had Alzheimer's disease. And, and uh, thankfully, we lived close to them here in this area. Um, but that was a challenging thing for, for, for my mother-in-law and for all of us to, to navigate. Um, but uh, toward the end of my father-in-law's life, we, we both agreed that we needed to try one more time. Um, and I said, this is going to be it. I'm not going to be like my mom and have five boys. I want a girl and try again. I'm not going to do that. So we'll try it one more time and see, see what we get. And so um, my wife at the time was about eight months pregnant with our, with our last boy. And it was at that time that my father-in-law's illness had kind of just come to this crescendo and and uh, he was eventually put into a, into a nursing home. And six days later, he, he passed in the summer of 20, uh, July of 2020. So right in the midst of COVID. And yeah. it was just an interesting time. Yeah. Um, but uh, Emily still had, uh, you know, a couple more weeks to go with, with her pregnancy at that time. And, uh, um, and so we didn't, you know, we, we did, that's kind of what we focused on next. But uh, two weeks after he passed, uh, she woke me up in the middle of the night and we kind of had an emergency situation where, um, you know, without sharing too many details, she, she was bleeding pretty heavily and we couldn't get it to stop. And we had to call an ambulance in the middle of the night and she was rushed to the hospital and, and they did an emergency C-section and, and uh, Nash arrived in our family um, about uh, six weeks early. Um, and so, uh, uh, and at that time he spent the next four weeks in the NICU um, and that was during COVID, so it was just a really weird time. Neither Emily or I could be together in the NICU ward, um, so we always had to visit separately. Yep. Um, but Emily made it a point to be at the NICU every day um, with, with him all the time. And then in the evenings, I would sometimes spell her off and, and go, go up there. But uh, just a, a really unique time and at that that was the summer that I actually started the job as an elementary principal so there was a lot that was going on that summer when Nash was Nash was born about five days before school started and so so it was, it was just, and everything yeah else. and COVID and just trying to open like that school name and, though that's a good yeah, name yeah that's a good one right that's yep, a good, that's one. A good so, one so it was it was a crazy time but in looking back at it all you know we just knew that it was all meant to be the way that it was um, and, and we're grateful for that. And, you know, here we are three and a half years later and, and, uh, Nash is a, a wonderful addition to our home. Although I will say that I think if we'd had the last two first, we'd probably only have two boys. We have five. We have <laughs> Another five. divine intervention. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have five wonderful boys and, and they, they are all different. It's amazing how our children can be so different but yet can be just such an amazing fit in our family. It's just the incredible part of it. What an incredible journey that you've had, Tate. This is a very, very inspiring story and honestly a very special podcast for me to be able to do. I do have one last question before I let you go. And that is, I'd love to ask you how you hope that others see those with <laughs> disabilities or with special abilities, as I like to say. Well, Brady, I think if there's one thing that I 
I believe more than anything above above all else um, is that we all that we all have divine potential. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what circumstances that we're born into or what abilities that we have when we're born. Um, but that every one of us has divine potential, um, and that every one of us is sent to earth and given gifts and 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 talents that need to be shared with with everyone. And as I mentioned earlier, that I really believe that God does not make mistakes. And that is especially true when it comes to um, to each of us. I really believe that those with special abilities in particular um, bring more light into the world and less darkness um, and bring more joy into the world. And, and less sadness. And so I know for parents initially, if they um, if their child's delivered and, and they find out shortly after that or within a few months, like my parents, that something's not right, um, it can be a shock initially. And for some, it can take some time to, to come around to, to the idea of it. Um, but in my experience, that those who join families um, that have special abilities um, bring greater joy, greater happiness, and, and a far greater measure of love um, into the home and into to the lives of all those who who know them. Um, and you know, if there if there is one thing that that I think about often, um, you know, I I have no idea what impact I have on people or when something, some interaction um, is profound for someone um, that I may not even have any clue that it is. Um, but, but what I do know is that um, I hope that all of us will see each other as God sees each of us um, and that we treat each other that way too. Um, because I always tell my students all of the time, particularly at the elementary school, that you can never, ever, ever go wrong by being kind to someone else. You just can't. And I think those with special abilities have a unique way of doing that. Um, they have a unique way of bringing more kindness and love into the world. And um, I, I see them as a tremendous blessing. And I, and I would hope that others do, too. Um, because there's just so much warmth and love and joy that can come from being around those with special abilities. And for that, I, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful every day, and, and I'm grateful that the Lord knows us well enough to know what, what and who we need in our life um, to, help us, to help us reach our own divine potential, because that's what he wants for all of us. Thank you cannot imagine a more better and articulate and better way to describe what we all believe is that that very special gift that is special abilities. And you are a perfect example of somebody who I believe is singing the song they're meant to sing. And you're doing so in the service of others. And it's starting right there in your own home and it's going to your school and your community. And obviously you've been such a tremendous blessing to me today. So thank you. Thank you for being on the show. And I have to say, I think that there needs to be another episode, and I think we need to have Emily on, and I would love to interview her. 
because I think that would be a pretty amazing interview to hear. So well, I, I do too. I do too. I don't know if she would agree, but I do too. I think that would be great. So she she's uh, she is the better half of me. That is for sure. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks for being on the show, Tate, and we wish you well. Thank you. It's been my honor and pleasure. 